The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. We're reading together from uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in, truth, in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy New Year. It's good to see you all. I'm excited to get into this passage with you as we start the new year. Uh, My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, We're going to be doing a few things over the next uh, three weeks and then be transitioning into the Gospel of Matthew uh, starting in the last uh, Sunday of January. So for the next three weeks, we're just kind of looking at this concept of what does it mean to orient our lives around Jesus and our day-to-day rhythms. We've been talking about that a little bit during Advent and the Advent season. We're going to be talking about it a little more specifically right now as we get into a new year. Um, For me, the kind of 
New year marks a time to look back at this past year. What has God done? Where have I kind of wandered? Where have I kind of like fallen away of certain things that I wanted to work on? Where have I grown? What's God doing in my life now? But also what do I want this next year to look like? So a ton of people are doing that. You're thinking about new habits, new rhythms. And that's actually a healthy thing to do in life. As much as we joke about it because most of us don't last, we just keep paying the gym membership. Uh, we don't keep going to the gym. Um, you know, we repurchase Netflix when a new show comes out or something like that. Um, like cancel our subscriptions. And it's like, ooh, that sounds like a cool new show. Like resubscribe. Um, so it's a joke. And yet like the, the idea of considering our life, taking stock of our life, and what are the rhythms of my life cultivating in me, and where do I want to reorient that is a really healthy thing. It's actually a question of worship. Uh, worship is a, is a question of what are we orienting our life around and believing that, that that object or that thing or that person will give us life. And so that's the question we want to, actually, we want to look at with some detail over the next few weeks. Um, so we're going to be looking at that for the next three weeks, and then we'll dive into our series in Matthew, which I'm thoroughly excited about. Um, so uh, we need to pray this morning because we need Jesus to work. I'm going to be drawing attention in particular uh, to how Jesus wants to confront certain things in our life that are disorder, disordering our worship. And, uh, and that means I want to poke at you a little bit uh, this morning because uh, I think Jesus wants to do that for us. Um, I think he wants to kind of like convict us of areas where our lives are disordered. And, and that will mean something for us or ought to. And at the core of this kind of like, uh, even my motivation in this uh, and God's motivation in doing these things is God's desire for our worship. I want you to look at, before we pray, verse 23 of John 4. So if you have your Bible, keep it open. Verse 23. This is what Jesus says in his care for this woman at the well. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And the Father's seeking, progressively, continually, currently, seeking. He's seeking you, he's seeking your life because he's for you. At the core of this message is Jesus' offer of living water that once you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. He's seeking your worship and he's seeking to satisfy you as you orient your life around him. He's seeking that this morning. And so that, that's a powerful thing to consider, that the Father is currently seeking you and he's seeking your worship. And so let's calm our hearts before him and ask him to work this morning. Um, even as we calm our hearts just to ask, just want to ask you the question, where are you right now? I'm just emotionally, mentally, where are you? What's occupying your mind? What's gnawing at your attention? Just imagine this woman walking up on this noon, warm day to this well with different things occupying her mind and, and kind of having this unexpected encounter with Jesus. And so if, if Jesus were to, if you were to bump into him right now, where would your mind be? And Jesus, we're praying that you would do that, 
that you would intersect our lives in this moment with your person, with the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in power, that you would reveal and even confront areas where our lives are disordered, where our loves are disordered, and that you would powerfully invite and call us to yourself in fresh ways, in real ways, and actually in life-altering ways this morning. And so we need your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would work in power in Christ's name. Amen. Um, This story uh, of the woman at the well is one of the most powerful stories, in my opinion, in all of the Gospels. It's a a story that's impacted me in a number of ways, looking at Jesus' both care, but also powerful confrontation of this, of the, of this woman's life. His, his insight is kind of like piercing and yet loving insight into her life and what he does in her and the transformation that she experiences in the story itself. And so I wanted to kind of start in our, our series in this moment because of how Jesus does kind of very powerfully, very piercingly kind of like go right at the heart of what's going on in her life and what's leading her to this place of perpetual dissatisfaction. And it's a dissatisfaction that all of us are very familiar with. It's a dissatisfaction that we are constantly kind of working through in life. We're constantly finding ways and rhythms in life to kind of try to satisfy our souls. And at the core of this passage is this question of what can satisfy your soul. So I actually want to just dive into the story and then we're going to back up and I'll spend the majority of the time looking at how Jesus confronts uh, this woman's kind of disordered life and what that means for us. Um, but I want us to look at it with this, with this kind of conviction that Jesus wants all of your attention, all of your life, all of your love. He wants all of it. And he doesn't want all of it in a way that would kind of pull you out of the world. He wants all of it in a way that will help the world itself make sense to you. That when life is centered on Jesus, when his presence is at the center of your life and the center of your days, then all of the other things in life, all the sort of planets that orbit in the solar system of your life, find their proper place. And so this isn't going to be like an anti-friendship or an anti-marriage or an anti-technology or an anti-work or an anti-recreation or anti-hobby story. It's a pro-Jesus story. But when all of those things begin to occupy the center place in our life and Jesus gets pushed to the margins, the disorder in the solar system of your life leads to chaos. And it's a chaos that's dissatisfying, that's frustrating, that's perpetually empty that's perpetually kind of like anxiety building, depression inducing, and it's something that most of us live our lives kind of with this low grade sense of anxiety or depression that just kind of is there and we find ways even to mute and to reduce and to mitigate that, not through turning to Jesus, but through turning to the same things that created it to numb ourselves and distract ourselves. So we're gonna look at that and, uh, and uh, my hope is kind of at the end what we're wanting to kind of ask as a church is that you would take stock of your own life. And maybe you've been doing that. A lot of people have good habits around that annually. Um, But that you would, all of us would, take some stock of the habits of our life and what they're revealing about what we love and what it might mean about reorienting those habits towards a love for Jesus. And so I want to actually begin by reading from this story, starting in verse 7 again. Jesus is Uh, The kind of reasoning, I'm I'm not going to unpack all of the elements of this story the way I would if we were preaching through John. I just want to hone in on three three different things. Um, And this first one, I'm going to read the the first section. And the first point that we'll see is that our hearts are craving satisfaction. Our hearts are craving, perpetually craving satisfaction. We talk about that a lot, so I won't spend a ton of time on it. Look at verse 7. 
It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I'm going to stop there and just give some context. Um, this woman was a Samaritan woman. As Samaritans are, are people that were um, kind of one from the descendants of Israel, but had compromised and had kind of intermarried with people from other uh, nation groups, which for the people of Israel, that was a no-no. They had kind of brought in other idolatrous gods, other gods from other nations, and kind of like assimilated these different gods. And so for Jewish people, Samaritans were seen with massive stigma, significantly ostracized. They were seen as um, kind of lesser people. And so Jews would almost never relate to or interact with Samaritans. So Jesus in this journey happens to be going through uh, Samaria and he goes to this well, the disciples are away and it, it's pretty clear that he, he's doing this on purpose. He knows what he's doing in this interaction. Um, but it's a very unusual interaction. So this woman in the middle of the day around noon comes up to the well to draw water. Um, it's interesting that she would have drawn water in the middle of the day also. Um, almost never would people go in the middle of the day uh, for a lot of different reasons that we won't get into. But she's going in the middle of the day because not only is she ostracized among Israelites, but she's also an ostracized woman among her own people because of some of the social stigma around her own story. Um, she had gone through a lot of pain, a lot of loss in her story, and in that culture, um, the divorces that she had had, the current marital situation she's in, which is Jesus is going to draw attention to later, would have made her somebody that's like a socially outcast person. And so she's coming to this well at a time when she doesn't expect to interact with anybody. And yet, lo and behold, Jesus is there. Um, and, uh, and it surprises her in a lot of ways. And so here's what he says. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. She's saying, like, somebody like you doesn't interact with somebody like me. I'm Samaritan. I'm also a woman. And because of the patriarchal society, there are a lot of, like, negative um, opinions and thoughts among men towards women that prevailed in society. So for men to interact kind of socially with women, period, in that kind of a society, in a social place like that, or a public place like that, wasn't going to happen. So he's breaking all of the social norms to show care and love and attention to this woman who had been otherwise outcast in her society. It was a bizarre thing. And it says there in the text, it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered her and he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. And, uh, and the woman was confused, which most people are after Jesus talks to them. It's like a pretty normal thing. <laughs> Jesus says something and people are like, what? You know, um, and then after a while you're like, oh man, that's amazing and powerful and deep and loving and godly. You know, like, uh, but at first you're like, I don't get it. You're weird. And, uh, and that's what she felt. You're talking to me. You're saying weird things. Uh, like maybe felt creeped out a little bit. And, uh, and she says, confused, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Like very tongue in cheek, like, oh, you're going to give me living water. You don't even have a bucket to go into the well. Like it, I don't understand. And then she says this, she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus is drawing out here this object lesson. 
And it's interesting that it's happening at a well. The well, just in Hebrew narrative, is a, it's a type scene. When you have this interaction at a well, you have these like expectations. Any Jewish reader, anytime like a man and a woman at a well, you're like, oh man, something's gonna happen. Like as it does every time that shows up in the Old Testament. It's like builds these literary expectations when a man and a woman interact at a well. And uh, one of the things it's reminding you of, and in this particular well, is, is something that had happened with Jacob long before, and uh, a longer story that we won't get into. But at the core of this, of this talk about water is a talk about satisfaction of our souls. It's a talk about worship. And the water itself is going to be representing, and everything Jesus says here forward is going to be representing life-giving substance. What what actually gives life? What are you going to to give life? This woman has gone up in the middle of the day to this well because water is going to be giving her life. And Jesus is saying that kind of water, which you have to go to again and again and again, can never fully thoroughly satisfy you. I have a different kind of water that will satisfy you forever. Here's what he says. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. In other words, this well does not satisfy. You're going to go to it over and over and over every day, and it will not satisfy you. And begin thinking about your own life. You're going to a well over and over and over again. And to use that kind of like question, like how's it working out for you? Like what's the well you're going to over and over and over again? It's not gonna satisfy. You will be thirsty again. But, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Like when Jesus gives water, something happens internally that continues to to bubble and satisfy and produce more and more life. You don't have to draw again and again and again. It creates life. It sustains life. It continues to provide life. This water that Jesus gives. And then the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And you immediately begin to feel in her, even the fact that she says that I'd have to come here. Like she feels for a lot of different reasons that Jesus will end up drawing out of her. She feels the kind of like pain of this kind of rhythm of life where her life is at. Even the reason why she's going in the middle of the day to this public well to draw water because she needs it. And she feels like she needs it every single day because people need water. But she's going to this well again and again and again, feeling the stigma, feeling the shame, feeling ostracized, feeling socially marginalized, feeling that every day. And just saying, I have to experience this pain every day. I would love to not have to do this over and over and over again. I would love it if there was another way. And, and at the core of this is a, is a question of worship, And this is what Jeremiah, we quote this pas- passage often, it really has framed the way I, I tend to think about worship and life uh, as a whole. This is Jeremiah 2, um, which gets into this concept of living water that Jesus is tapping into in this, in this story. And, uh, and this is what Jeremiah the prophet says on behalf of the Lord God. He says, has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? In other words, have you taken... What you're supposed to be giving your life and orienting your life around, which is the presence of God and abiding in his love and drawing near to him and walking with him through the day and being attentive to his nearness, to to stop orienting your life around the true God and to actually exchange the true God for other things that you could create in yourself is, in Jeremiah's 
terms evil. He says, the nation changed its gods even though there are no gods. My, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Like, the Lord's saying, like, this is crazy and appalling and devastating. This exchange that's happened. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. They turned away from me the fountain of living waters. Think about Jesus' phrase. I could give you living water, he's saying. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, have, that can hold no water. So they turn from the God who gives life and who sustains life and who gives a, a spring of water that bubbles up, and they've come over here into these other cisterns that they've worked so hard to create with their own power, but they're broken and they can't even hold water, and they're trying to lap out of the broken cistern that took a ton of effort to create this stale, stagnant, dirty water that's trying to satisfy them. And this is what the woman at the well is experiencing. She's in a broken cistern that she has to come to again and again and again. And she feels her shame and she feels ostracized and she feels the brokenness. And he's saying, there's another way. There's another way. It's a question of worship. What are you orienting your life around? What are you actually orienting your life around? And she's going to get into this question very explicitly. She's going to say to him later, She's going to ask the question of worship. The, the Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans, we worship at, over at this temple and on this mountain over here at Jacob's well and around this, this whole system. Like, which is the right way? Like, that's a question of worship. What should we orient our life around? If you're a prophet, if you have this insight, what should we be orienting our life around? Is this big question that's kind of at the heart of this whole passage. And St. Augustine, who famously said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless, always longing, always craving, always desiring more, until they finally rest in him, or to use the phrase in this, they drink from his living water. And so this is at the core, is this question of worship, that your heart is craving it, your heart is craving satisfaction. You're ordering your life around things that you think will give satisfaction. And in this passage, and what I want to kind of give the bulk of our time to, is this reality, the second observation, that Jesus confronts our disordered worship. He confronts it. He kicks it in the teeth. Just like goes right for it. Not, ang not with anger. Not with like vindictive spirit. Not mean-spirited, but with love and compassion like a fighting for you. That's my prayer for us this morning, that Jesus would be fighting for your life, fighting for your soul, fighting for your satisfaction in him. And doing that through actually confronting something, like something that won't feel good. And this is what Jesus says to her in this moment. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, she's like, I want the water, I want the water. Like, I'd like the living water. I'd love to do it. And he doesn't say, great, here I am, drink. He first says to her, go call your husband and come here. And you just immediately, I can just imagine, like, this woman who has this painful story. We don't know all the details behind the story, but it just sounds painful. And you just feel like maybe, like, shame that heaps up for her. Like, she feels seen, she feels vulnerable, she feels in some ways, like, just very uncomfortable now. And so she gives an answer, which is true, 
but is like avoiding the reality of the deeper pain she's experiencing. And she says, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you said is true. And he's not trying to shame her, but he is bringing her into a reality. And, and the kind of function of the husband in her life is for a lot of different reasons in that social setting that we don't know all of, but it is the well she has run to again and again and again. It's not just generally a broken cistern. He didn't just say, don't run to broken cisterns. He's actually drawing attention to her broken cistern. In marriage, in that society, a husband would give you social honor. You'd have economic security. You'd have long-term security. You would have religious, even, dignity and perpetuity, like the idea of your name being passed on, the idea of this economic, social, kind of like status that you had through marriage is something that for whatever reasons for her had been lost again and again and again. And now she's with another man who's not her husband, and this is guy number six for her. And I don't know all that happened, and we don't know all that happened. We don't know what happened to her and the, and the pain that she felt and the wounds that had been inflicted upon her. We don't know her own culpability in those scenarios. What we know is this has been a pattern of her life again and again and again. It's been the broken cistern that she's run to. And Jesus is drawing attention to it. And he wants to do that for us. He wants to do that for us. And so I'm asking this kind of bigger question, like what's the broken cistern in my life? And he's, in this particular instance, drawing attention to a habit, something that has been shaping her life. And, and I, want to, I want to, for a moment, draw attention to what I, I do think is one of the most significant broken cisterns in our society. And this is not the case for every single person in this room, but the vast majority of us, which is our hyper-addiction to distraction. And, and we've been talking about this, but this is a time that I just want to, like, get really clear about the addictive, emotionally painful, spiritually suffocating, like life-destroying power of addiction to kind of trivial, like ridiculous sometimes and sometimes not, but patterns and habits that are robbing our attention from the fountain of living water and that are calling for us to come again and again, and again, and again to a well that is not a well at all. It is a broken cistern that we made, and it's not satisfying. It's not. So I like feel like this is real for a lot of us, and there are a lot of different things in here, and, and I'm not saying it as shame, and I'm not saying it like as any sort of like, I'm not trying to send you on a guilt trip. I'm trying to reveal something that I think is very real, and I, honestly like self-evident, for most of us when we get really honest about it and say, what would it look like if Jesus was saying, that is a broken cistern and I'm inviting you to a whole better way, to living water. Living water versus a well that you're running to again and again and again. Uh, there's there's a, a ton of history behind this and a ton of science and a ton of data and, and a lot of stats that I think are compelling and disturbing and, and frustrating and like, Hard and, and I'm just saying, I'm in it with you. I just got my little screen time notification this morning about my screen time for the past week. It wasn't good. It was just, it was like, 
It was, it was New Year's. We had days off. You know, uh, you know uh, excuses. Uh, I gave my life to certain things. And, and I'm just saying, I'm in it. I'm in it. Like, I literally got it like 30 minutes before I like, walked up on stage. I'm like, oh, that's what I'm talking about today. That, that, <laughs> that thing. Um, it's there. And honestly, it's there. It's interesting because it's there because this is something that society at large is paying attention to. Now, there are deeper dynamics than the way society's talking about these sort of addictive patterns and these habits. There are deeper things, but there's a huge history behind this, just so you know, kind of even the thoughtfulness. Uh, there's a documentary you can find on YouTube called The Century of Self. The Century of Self. It is stunning. It is painful. It is disturbing. It is heavy, but a lot of it, the first episode of it, which is roughly an hour or so, centers around a guy named Edward Bernays, uh, who was kind of the father of the modern advertising movement in the 19. You know, 10s and 20s, and just the ideas of what they were doing post-World War I to think about how do we continue to build economy and stabilize culture in peacetime, and the thoughtfulness around creating consumer culture, creating the concepts of principled obsolescence, which is the idea of like, in the very principle of the new phone you buy or the new gadget you get or the new TV you get, we are not planning on you using this purely as utility until it breaks down. We're planning on you using this until we create a better one that's going to make you feel like you need something more. And so they created that. That didn't exist in a kind of prior World War I kind of era. Everything was bought based on utility and function and durability and longevity. Never I'm buying it and buying another one because it's slightly better than the last one. It, that wasn't a real thing. And so this whole idea, and it's tapping into what Rene Girard calls mimetic desire, which is this concept of like we look at somebody else and what they have, we immediately want it. It's this kind of principle of greed and covetousness, which lies at the core of the human heart, lies at the core of idolatry is this desire, I want what you have, and it exists in all of us as humans. And so if you can show people an image of somebody or something that has this thing that seems to be making their life wonderful, it creates in you a longing for that thing, and whole societies can be captivated by that if they can market it the right way, publicize it the right way. And and Edward Bernays mastered this in a ton of different things, political movements and advertising movements and social movements. He was kind of like testing out basic Freudian psychology on the masses, and it worked. And it totally worked. And there's tons of psychology around this. Um, Skinner and other psychologists did tons of work. And, and it was just like this. People were saying, oh, this is a way we can get people to want stuff. We figured that out. And that was 100 years ago. 100 years ago. And so then, I, you know, I just, this past fall... Reread Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And it's like picking up on that theme it was written in that era. And it's picking up on that theme and just wondering what it would look like if society continued to race in that direction. And it's stunning. If you read that, again, it's disturbing and it's super broken and messed up story, but stunning. And Aldous Huxley was not a believer. And he kind of saw, and even in the book, there's a juxtaposition of the way the world's moving. And this one guy that's called the savage, this guy John, who like is this kind of contrast like who wants there to be beauty and depth and intimacy and faithfulness and loyalty and, and compassion and presence. And, and he sees this other world because he didn't grow up in the same context. And he's seen as like a laughing stock of this kind of archaic guy, like almost like a zoo exhibit to be like, that guy's funny. As the rest of society barrels down this path of pleasurable distractions that are numbing them from the reality kind of using narcotics and entertainment and distraction and technology and all these things to just numb themselves from emotional unhealth and pain and to continue their kind of like pursuit of stability and peace. And it, and it worked. And it's stunning to read that now and think like, it's, it's, there's a lot, I mean, 
it's hard to not read it and think this is what we've experienced. Significantly. Tons of overlap. Like I, and again, it's a dark book, so it's hard to like, I like dark books. You know, I'm like a Flannery O'Connor fan, like weird endings that like bother you um, and mess you up for a little while. Um, it's one of those. You just like end, you're like, well, shoot. <laughs> um, like sad and disturbed and convicted and all sorts of things. Um, but it's just interesting. You watch that work out. And even Huxley said in, in the 1950s in a speech he gave, he didn't expect it to happen in the same ways he saw. In the 1950s, he already saw like, oh yeah, we're on our way. We're on our way there. And it's interesting as you continue to kind of like look at that concept and just consider right now just the situation. Um, there's a ton of stats around things like this. Right now, the, the average phone time use every day is three hours and 15 minutes a day of active phone use. Three hours and 15 minutes a day, 75% of that. 75% of that is like two minute kind of like glimpses, like something around two minute glimpses or under two minutes, 75% of it. Um, but it's three hours and 15 minutes of the average person's day. And you can check out on your own phone how much your average time is. But my guess is for many people in here, it's two to four hours of time. And that's just a lot of time every day on your phone. Um, it's a lot of time also like during work hours, which is like interesting. There's articles about that, about the amount of work hours that are given to not work cell phone usage. Um, you know, employers read that and they're like, huh. Uh, and then they read that like on Twitter, you know, like or something. Um, so it happens. Um, but it's crazy. So you have that kind of thing. 89% of people check their phone the first thing they wake up in the morning. Roughly 90% of people, higher among millennials. 90% of people check their phone first thing in the morning. Um, and it's not just like social media, it's games, it's addictive games, it is social media. But to know that like at the core of all of that um, is, is a understanding of human psychology that is like taken advantage of our kind of like psychological experience and monetized it. Like it's monetized your attention span. The more, you, you know that, right? The more time you look at Instagram and you see the ads, the more time you're on Facebook, the more time you're on these news sites and websites and going through like through all the clickbait and the games that are having these apps, the more time you're on them, you know these companies are making money off of that. It is to their advantage for you to spend more time in those contexts. It is to their economic advantage. And now their whole company and their earnings and their projections and their stockholders are all banking on that, continuing to progress. And it's designed, tapping into these psychological vulnerabilities that we have as human beings, understanding the science. And a number of people have kind of like, I'm gonna use the word defected. You know, even people from the tech industry have like been like, this isn't good. And some of the most loud, proponents of kind of like healthier understanding of technology are people that were in the sort of earlier stages of social media and kind of the technological movement that's happened over the past 10 years. Just kind of pushed away and thought like this, we've created a monster and the, and the train is moving and we can't stop it. It's real. If you think about TV usage, the average person watches TV roughly two and a half to three hours per day. Um, it's yeah, again, there's the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics talked about in 2018, three hours and 15 minutes. Um, but for families with kids, it's closer to like two hours. So if, I think like in our context, two to three hours of TV a day. Um, you're, you're, you tally it up. And so it's not like we don't have time to spend with Jesus. We're just addicted to other things. Most of us, not all of us. Some of you have been like really healthy in these things. And that's beautiful. And like there's a holiness to that. Um, some of us do it out of discipline just because of something else, but there's deeper things happening. 
There's, there's a spiritual war at place. We talked about in the fall this concept of cosmic geography, which is that we kind of live in a world that is governed by and ruled by principalities and powers that are at odds with the one true God. That when humanity rebelled against the, the nature of God and the presence of God and the person of God and the reign of God and we are kicked out of Eden, exiled from Eden, we come under the kind of influence and the, and the rule of spiritual forces of darkness that have different means of keeping people away from the living God in every different society throughout history. And so to say this isn't just like emotionally this is messing us up because it's, it's like numbing our ability to feel, it's destroying our ability to hold attention, it's destroying relationships and leading to social anxiety and, and loneliness and depression. Those things are all real. Anybody that's looking at this stuff, read any book, and there's tons of books about this. Everybody's saying that same stuff. But there's also a spiritual power behind it that's keeping us from giving attention to God. And so we come here on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half and we're like, I want Jesus and, I, and this is good and I want Jesus. Then we go back into our addictive behaviors that continue to put before us a different rhythm of life that's holding us away from and keeping our attention from God. And so it's not to say technology's wrong or TV's wrong or, or going and playing like beer kickball, which is a thing in Denver, you know, like... That, like, when I came to Denver and I was at the park down by Little Man and I saw people, like, carrying beers, kicking kickball, I'm like, why are they, why didn't they sit it? And, like, oh, they're all, oh, oh, that's awesome, you know, like, that's so cool. That's way better than kickball. Um, But, like, recreational habits and hiking and camping and fishing and climbing and all the things that we love to do in Denver that are different than technology and movies, but we do that too. Workaholism in the next bar and the next cocktail place and the next brunch place, whatever it is, like more and more and more. It's not that those are bad. It's the cumulative toll on our attention is to keep us away from the presence of God. And when we run to it again and again and again, and then we feel the anxiety and feel the emotional pain, we feel spiritually malnourished. In other words, we feel the emptiness and we feel the dissatisfaction of that well, but we run to it again. And we actually run to it to numb ourselves from that pain, but it doesn't, doesn't remedy the pain. And Jesus is confronting this woman in this woman's life, the well she runs to. And I just think like, for us, what does it look like to say, what would he be confronting, even in this realm? I could talk about a ton of other realms, uh, sexuality, uh, around things like sexuality and work and aspirations and relationships. There's all these, but I just want to like sit here and say, if we are giving roughly two to seven hours a day towards things like kind of like trivial phone usage and TV watching, which isn't inherently evil, but if the cumulative toll is we have no time to relate to Jesus or to be present emotionally with our own selves or sit in silence or to have a meaningful conversation where we're fully present with somebody else, something destructive is happening. And there are spiritual forces that want you to stay there. They're spiritual forces. And so Jesus at the core of this passage is inviting us to a different way. He's inviting us to a different way. He's inviting us to orient our life around him. And he will satisfy. And here's what he says to the woman in verse 21. He says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Like you, every, they're orienting their life around this sort of religious practice. You're orienting your life around this religious practice. You're all orienting your lives around different things. And he says this, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and he's here right now. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, the anointed one, the the Christ, the coming king, I know he's coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Um, Jesus is intervening, saying, I'm the way to life. I'm the substance of life. I can not only forgive you for the ways you've turned from me, not only cleanse you from the shame you felt socially, not only take away the stigma, and not only take away the kind of sense of dejection and rejection that, that you feel, but I can give you life, love, joy, rest, peace, security, hope, healing, emotional healing, relational presence. I, I can give you all that life is in me. And he says, come to me. He says in John 7, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and I'll give you life. And this is the invitation. Now we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks, what does it look like to come to him? Because we can talk about it and you're like, okay, I want that. We're going to talk about over the next, what does it mean to orient your life around him? To actually not just put him at the center of an hour and a half on Sunday or maybe a small group that you go to, but to put him at the center of your days and to actually push against things that are robbing your attention from him. And and that matters for your soul and it matters for your life and it matters for your joy. But today I just want to say like, what would it look like for you to create space this week to do what Jamie Smith calls a liturgical audit or our friends at Bridgetown uh, and Portland call a habit audit, uh, which is just to look at the reality of your day and just take a little log and just say, what do I do in the day? Like how much time? And just like keep a log with you throughout the day. What am I giving my time to in the day? Check out your screen time app. Pay attention to how many episodes of things you're watching. Just observe. Just take stock. What is my attention going to? And is it possible that that is a broken cistern that is keeping me away from the presence of God? So take a kind of an audit of your life and the way you give your time throughout your day, the way your habits are there. And then ask these questions. One, like what are these revealing about what I love? And two, are these or are these not cultivating in me a deeper love for Jesus? Take a habit audit, a liturgical audit. Liturgy is just like the rhythms, the kind of like order of things in a certain like setting. So take a, a, a habit audit of your life, and just look at it. I wake up in the morning, I check you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and then I make coffee, and then I exercise, and then I do this, and then I go to work, and then I listen to a podcast, and then I work, and I, you know, like just take it, and here's how many minutes I give to those things, and just like, what do they reveal? Like, what do they reveal about what you love? And are they cultivating in you? Is your current life, the rhythms of your life, cultivating in you a, a deeper, like, focused attention on Jesus. And what Jesus isn't looking for is like, if you try harder to put me at the center, then I'll love you. He loves you. He's offering you life. He's just saying, come to me. And so we're not saying, do this for his love. We're saying, because of his love, because he's sitting here offering us living water, wouldn't it be wise of us and just like a no-brainer to think about how could I take away the things that are broken cisterns and reduce those in my life and reorient my life more and more around the one who actually satisfies. And if we do that, if you do that in your life, if you, if you kind of look at your year, even if you've kind of grown in these things, like keep cultivating in it. 
There's a water, there's a life-giving source, and it's Jesus himself, which can satisfy you in ways that you maybe have never dreamed possible. And let's pray together. Jesus, we um, right now are just confessing that we need you um, because these things aren't just a matter of disciplines. There's spiritual war happening right now. Just feel aware that the enemy hates these conversations, hates them. Um, And so I just imagine him attacking with defeatism. Maybe it's something, you've tried this before. Maybe you felt this last year and you feel like it didn't last or it didn't change. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe some of the things that you are giving your time to are also ways to avoid a silence that's hard for you to sit in because of other things that are happening in your heart. I think Satan wants to do harmful things in that space. And so, Jesus, would you remind every single person in this room of your love for them just to watch the Samaritan woman leave this story with her heart full of joy, her heart full of awe and wonder, like even watching her run into the kind of village that she had come from with a sense of confidence and boldness and invitation to others to see her move from marginalized to this inviting, powerful presence in her community that would invite people to experience the life that she's found in Jesus. And so I I pray that you would, Jesus, uh, right now, that you would be inviting us into that. And again, that you'd be intervening in life, saying, I'm right here, I'm right here. Like I know what you've been giving yourself to and I know what it's been leading you to and I know the emotional pain and I know the, the just emotional, maybe even just the numbness that you feel. And I'm right here. I'm right here. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace purchased through your blood on the cross, that even while we all, like sheep, have gone astray, we've all turned to different ways, um, you took our iniquity upon yourself. You demonstrated your love for us by laying down your life to redeem us, to rescue us from these destructive paths. And so would you powerfully um, work to cultivate in us a hunger for you, a thirst for you, and a desire to orient our lives increasingly around the reality of your presence with us. In Christ's name, amen.